0: Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, we need to do some serious talk. You may have noticed that one of our prior guests, John Stackhouse, has been in the news lately. You can go check it out yourself. I'm not gonna rehearse everything here. But because we have a zero tolerance policy at Spiritually Incorrect, with regards to the accusations and evidence out there, we've decided to take the episode down. And that stinks for us because it was one of our best performing episodes. But again, we hold ourselves to a high moral bar and we want that to be reflected in the content that we put out there and look ahead in the future because we hope to bring someone else on to replace the episode and give another talk regarding evangelicalism and its future. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to the fun part. Halloween is over, and like most years, it was the most celebrated and expensive American holiday outside of Christmas. And it seems every year, it only gets bigger. But not all Christians have been comfortable celebrating the festivals. In fact, for a few decades now, some Christians have offered an alternative to the ever-popular Spook House called Hell Houses. They're just like they sound. Kids go in, and just like a spook house, they certainly get some frights, but not from high schoolers in clown costumes. Instead, they're met with pictures of torment and horrors that await the unrepentant. It's a moral lesson, or that's how the story goes at least. While it's easy to frown on these events, they do accurately portray what many believe awaits those who aren't Christian. But is this right? Have we gotten hell wrong? What does the Bible actually say about the fate of the unredeemed? This is a vast topic, so it's going to take a few episodes. But on this episode of Spiritually Incorrect, we begin with a view you may never have heard of, yet one that is increasingly popular in evangelical churches. Today we ask, is hell nothing more than ceasing to exist? Another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have hellish destruction, the whore of Babylon, and what do we mean when we talk about nothing? I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Dr. Jonathan Lionheart. Hello,
1: darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. I don't know how to I don't know how to be in this podcast because we have such this this comedic back and forth where we make fun of each other, but we're talking about hell, annihilation, the ceasing of souls to exist. and I don't know what genre this is, Seth are like are we allowed to make jokes in this episode?
0: John, my whole experience with you has been something like hell. so hey, hey, there's a joke.
1: yay. We're funny. We make jokes about eternal suffering. Our audience hates us. How do we how do we hate us?
2: Why do they hate us?
1: I I just I don't know what the balance is here. You're going to hell. (laughs) See, but even joking about hell. I remember when I was at a Bible college, I made a joke about hell and someone just looked at me like, I do not joke about hell. Like that they just gave me one of those looks, and then you know, it was just like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I I mean, and I get it. I understand if hell is this literal eternal torment. It's like making a joke about the Holocaust times 20 or, you know, but it's just I, I just I don't know. But, There's that, still... that,
0: that, None of them are our audience, though. If they're not here to hear irreverent conversations about theology, we've driven them off a long time ago.
1: Here, I figured it out. This is how we're going to frame this. Our jokes are not about the concept of eternal nothingness or annihilation or hell in itself. We are, our comedic attitude and dismissive sarcasm is towards the caricature of hell as little red demons with pitchforks poking people. We are not mocking the the discussion in and of itself, but the caricatures of it, which we can acknowledge are comedic and ridiculous because hell, if it exists, is probably not populated by little, red baboons with large forks
0: i'm pretty sure most people wouldn't say if it exists we're i think we're kind of on the perspective of the no, size I, that I, we're I, showing or all that there you are. you said if you made it a conditional
1: i'm not saying therefore it doesn't exist i'm just saying if you will for the sake of this discussion grant to me you know that's the way good philosophers uh-huh. talk very nuanced language granting nothing this is how you in- go
0: to hell john
1: Wow! You need wow. to watch and your
0: language, Tom. You, you,
1: see, and this is exactly the sort of comedic stuff that isn't appreciated, Seth.
0: Like oh. this is, you just, just, just loosen up. You know, take a cut, to a few deep breaths. John, here's the wonderful thing: we're never gonna know what hell is like because we're not gonna be there. Fingers crossed. Just you and
1: me. Nobody just else is the truth. Just this podcast. This is the only podcast on earth, which has the I
0: have a, I have a joke with one of my best buds that his brother, who's just like one of the most irreverent people we know, we have this joke that Jesus is going to return and he's going to be the only one that's found worthy. And he's just like making fun of us <laughs> as he's the only one found worthy of heaven. The rest of us are left on earth.
1: <laughs> well, C.S. Lewis has this quote that, of course, joking is undignified. That's why it's so good for your soul. And I find that there's a certain humility and a willingness to be undignified and ridiculous that accompanies some of the most humble people I know because they're willing to be the butt of a joke. They're willing to sound ridiculous or crude and to almost make a a mockery of themselves because they don't have this massive ego that they're trying to protect in the way that people who are, oh, that's, we didn't want to make jokes. That's, that's, that's very unbecoming. That's a hell in
0: and of itself.
1: There is is no laughter in hell. I imagine hell is is not a place where people are making lots of jokes at each other's expense. It's just a place where no one's laughing or feeling joy at all. You know, like I imagine heaven will be full of people making jokes playfully about each other and teasing. And if Jesus didn't give the 12 disciples a hard time, I'm going to be very disappointed.
0: Well, on that note, I might point out that we've gotten really far away from the concept of hell that we're actually talking about today, which is annihilationism. And we have Chris Date here to defend that view. Annihilationism is just the view that when you die and you're not redeemed, hell is just, the final judgment is just, you poof out of existence. It's not an eternal state of suffering. There's just nothingness. And Chris Date, who is quite a conservative evangelical scholar, he's defended this quite a bit. He's written extensively, been in quite a few debates, but he's part of a ministry called Rethinking Hell. So we're real lucky to have him. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hello
1: darkness, my old friend. Well, we're here now with Chris Date. Thank you for joining us today, Chris.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for
2: having me.
1: Well, why don't you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your kind of background?
2: I am 43 years old. I live in the Pacific Northwest with my wife of over 20 years and our four sons, uh, ranging in age from 10 years old at the youngest all the way up to 22 years old at the um, oldest. And my entire adult life, I've been a software engineer, I'm a software developer, but that's not really where my passions are. I became a Christian when I was 20, 21 years old, very shortly after my wife and I got married, and then she became a Christian a few years later. But very early on, after becoming a Christian, having formerly been an atheist, I developed a real passion and and a passion for and belief in the importance of careful biblical exegesis, Sound theologizing and effective apologetics. And so those are where my passions tend to be. And so to that end, and hoping one day to teach professionally in um, especially Bible and theology one day, I began a bachelor's degree in religion in 2014, graduated with that in 2017, and then began a Master of Arts and Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, which I completed in 2020. Listeners or viewers might think, oh, well, of course, the guy that's on the show to talk about the topic we're talking about today went to Fuller, but I'm extremely conservative. I'm reformed, a five-point Calvinist. I'm one of those weirdo young earth creationists that are still around nowadays. You know, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture and on and on it goes. I'm very conservative, but I went to Fuller after getting my undergrad in a conservative institution because I wanted to go somewhere other than an echo chamber. I wanted to go somewhere where I'd stretch my mind and be challenged with views and arguments that I hadn't considered before. So I graduated from that uh, in 2020 and hoped to go on to do a PhD in biblical studies or biblical theology at some point in the not too distant future. And like I said, my hope is one day to teach full time at the university or seminary level. We'll see if that happens anytime soon. And in the meantime, I do a few different podcasts, YouTube channels, stuff like that, that, including the one that I'm most known for, for which reason we'll talk about here in a minute. People can find everything they want about me at chrisdate.info, and uh, they'll find all sorts of articles and blogs and books that I've published and YouTube videos of all sorts there. So I guess that's a good start. If you have any other specific questions about me, I'd be happy to answer them.
1: A young earth creationist annihilationist? Yes. This is amazing. I didn't know that. That is such a unique. How many of
2: How many are there of you? I mean, there are a few of us. It's yeah, young young Earth creationism actually goes extremely well with annihilationism for reasons that we can talk about soon. But the the thing is, is no no theologian, no no like scholar, if you can call me one, is a young Earth creationist because they want to be one because it's it's convenient. We do it because we're committed to the authority of Scripture and we think rightly or wrongly that Scripture is supporting a young earth creationist view. Well, so if your commitment to the authority and inerrancy of scripture, rightly or wrongly, leads you to become a young earth creationist, well, then that very same commitment to the authority of scripture is what drives one to be an annihilationist as well. And and we'll be talking about that in the course of conversation. But not only that, it also, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon, but if you believe that death literally that death was the result of the curse, Um, literal death, ordinary death, death without code language, then, which is what young earth creationism says, there was no death prior to the fall. Well, it makes sense then that you would understand the rest of the Bible's language about death likewise. So anyway, we could talk more as the conversation continues. Chris, you are
1: really blowing my mind. This, you just got so interesting to me. Well, great. I appreciate it. (laughs) I'm, I'm excited.
0: So we're already getting into the topic of annihilationism. We've talked about young earth creationism, so hopefully our audience knows what that is. But what is annihilationism? Broadly speaking, what are you if you are an annihilationist?
2: Yeah, so let me uh, answer that question by answering a slightly different one first, um, because uh, annihilationism is one of three competing Christian views of hell, of final punishment. And I actually think there's a better label for the annihilationist view that will help I think viewers understand what an annihilationist is committed to believing. So of those three views, there's the view that most of your listeners or viewers will probably be familiar with. It's the traditional view called traditionalism in the literature, not because it is held to for purely traditional reasons, but because it has been the historically dominant view, at least since the time of Augustine or so, the fourth or fifth century. And according to this view... Along with all other Christians, believers in this view believe that uh, one day all humankind will have risen from the dead, will have been raised physically from the dead. And all Christians, including believers in this traditional view, agree that when the saints, when those who are in Christ are resurrected from the dead, they will be made immortal. And by immortal, I mean what everybody means uh, by immortal when they're not talking about the hell debate. And that is they'll go on living forever. They never, ever, ever, ever physically die. Everybody, all Christians that are genuine Orthodox Christians believe that will happen to the resurrected saints. But the question we're talking about here is about about what happens to the people who aren't saints when they are raised, those who aren't in Christ, uh, however you understand the means by which one gets into Christ. And the traditional view says that of those people who are resurrected from the dead who are not in Christ, they will also be made immortal. Again, not using code language, just ordinary, the word immortal, what everybody knows it means, which is they'll live forever. The traditional view says they too will be made immortal and they will physically live for all eternity in hell. Now there are all sorts of variations within it, right? So you've got people who believe that they will, that these resurrected immortals sent to hell will be tortured in physical flames. You've got people who believe that these resurrected immortals in hell will just be separated from God and and it'll be a psychological or, or spiritual kind of torment that they experience as a result of being separated from the love and goodness of God. But however you cash it out, the common denominator amongst any variation of this traditional view is that the lost are raised from the dead every bit as immortal as the saved. And the lost, like the saved, will go on living physically forever, but in the bad place rather than in the good place. Now, the second of the three views is one uh, that I think you just recently um, interviewed an advocate of by the name of Robin Perry, and that is universalism. And universalism agrees with the doctrine of eternal torment or, or the traditional view in that all humankind will be raised from the dead immortal. Everybody who is raised from the dead will never, ever, 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 ever die again. But the difference between universalism and the traditional view is that those lost who are sent to hell as resurrected immortals won't forever remain there because they will Every single one of them, even if it takes eons, will eventually turn to Christ in repentance and saving faith and be saved out of hell into heaven, or the eternal life, whatever you, whatever words or phrases you want to use to describe the resurrected immortal bliss that the saints enjoy. So the point I'm getting at here is that when we talk about the doctrine, well, there's two points. One is that when we talk about the doctrine of hell, we're not talking about what happens when you die. We're talking about what happens when you are raised from the dead sometime long after you've died. And both the traditional view and universalism say that people that are not in Christ when they are raised from the dead will be made immortal and will live forever. And so you might use a phrase like universal immortality or indiscriminate universal uh, or sorry, indiscriminate immortality to refer to both of those views. They both agree that God indiscriminately universally doles out physical immortality to all resurrected human beings on the last day. But that's where my view, the view of annihilationism, differs from those two views. Our view is typically by its advocates, we, we prefer to use the phrase conditional immortality. Because unlike universalism in the traditional view, we think Human beings that are raised from the dead have to meet a condition in order to be made immortal. And namely, they have to meet the condition of being saved. They have to be in Christ. And if they fail to meet that condition, then they will be raised for judgment, but they won't be raised immortal. They will be raised every bit as mortal as the three of us are right now. And so then the question becomes well, if they aren't made immortal like the saints are when they're raised from the dead, what will happen to them when they are sent to hell? And that's where the phrase or the word annihilationism comes in. Because number one, if you're raised immortal, to be clear, I didn't say if you're raised immortal, I said if you're raised a uh, mortal, then you're still dying. And you and and we believe that in hell, these resurrected lost will die, literally, they will cease to breathe, their hearts will cease pumping, they will cease to live. But the reason it's called annihilationism is because if human beings have both a material body and an immaterial soul or spirit, as most Christians have since, uh, well, for just about 2000 years, then what we annihilationists believe is that it's not only the resurrected body that literally dies in this second death when sent into hell it's also the spirits or souls of those resurrected lost people who unlike the first death will literally die in the second and if the whole if, if the whole human person body and soul ceases to live you know, literally dies then there is no conscious entity left there is no living a conscious person left and so they're entirely gone. They they have been in effect annihilated. So that's an, I mean, that was a longer explanation than you were probably looking for. But the gist of it is, we annihilationists believe that when the lost are res- resurrected, they will still be mortal, unlike the saved. Their punishment for their sins will be death, and they will die. And if they have non-physical souls, their souls are going to die as well in the second death, such that the whole person comes to an end, finally and forever. I mean, when we hear the term annihilationism, I can't help but
1: think of Thanos snapping his fingers and just annihilating everybody. But what you described is not so much God annihilating everybody, but is simply not doing anything, just allowing them to sort of go their natural course and not choosing to give them immortality. It's less, it's less annihilating and more just allowing them to cease.
2: It's slightly less maniacal. Not necessarily. There certainly are some you know, self-identifying conditionalists or annihilationist who would say that. But I don't. I think that the final punishment meted out in hell will be something akin to what happened to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, you're right. God isn't like Thanos snapping his fingers and, and the lost vanish into the proverbial ether. I agree with you there. But he is executing, in my view, the resurrected lost by possibly fire. After all, Jude and Peter, both in their letters, say that the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the slaying of their inhabitants serves as an example of what awaits the ungodly. So yes, that you can, as an annihilationist, believe that the means by which God brings about the final penalty of death is simply by sort of passively withholding his life-giving breath or something like that. that. That's fine. But that's not a commitment of annihilationism. Because there are those of us annihilationists or conditionalists who think that, no, God is actively going to execute the resurrected lost in probably a somewhat painful way. It's no mere lights out.
0: If I can expand upon your description of hell, I'm sure for a lot of our listeners who are confronting this for the first time, their initial gut reaction is, well, that's not how hell is described. When hell is described, it's, I mean, at least traditionally, we read it as eternal conscious torment or the traditionalist view. So maybe we could work through some of the metaphors and language of hell in scripture, like fire, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I'm curious, how do you as an annihilationist interpret that?
2: Well, so first of all, the the, the language that is used to describe what awaits those sent to hell, by and large, is the language of death and destruction, not weeping and gnashing, which by the way, is never said to go on eternally, Not outer darkness, that is in fact never a description of hell, I'll get to that in a second, but rather the plain straightforward language of being slain, of dying, of being killed. And so you've got John 3.16, one of the most famous, if not the most famous verse in scripture, God to love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not live forever in hell. Oh, wait, sorry, I got that wrong. Would not perish but have everlasting life. Or take Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is immortality in infl- Oh, wait, no, no, that's wrong too. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Jesus. Uh, in Jesus Christ is eternal life. And on and on I could go. The, 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 the fact is, if you were to line up the various descriptions of what takes place in hell, the overwhelming preponderance of them would be the language of death, destruction, vanishing, disappearing, all those kinds of things. Now, What about the language of weeping and gnashing? Let's start with that. Well, first of all, weeping and gnashing, as I said, is never described as going on forever anywhere. There are a few places in Matthew where Jesus uses the phrase, and it has to do with, first of all, it's in a a parable in which the last day is compared in a parable to uh, an earthly scene in which there's this brightly lit banquet hall where people are going to get married, and there are some improperly dressed Uh, guests. And because they're improperly dressed, they are bound hand and foot and thrown outside into the outer darkness, right? There's that language of outer darkness that you're describing, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, here's the important thing. This outer darkness language is not, it's not language used to describe hell. It's not even language that is a metaphor for hell. It's just literally the darkness outside the brightly lit wedding hall, banquet hall in Jesus's parable. So put yourself in the shoes of, of a first century Judean and imagine that you're bound hand and foot and thrown out of the of, out into the dark, cold night of first century Judea, bound hand and foot so you can't escape or, or save yourself. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to be killed by passing bandits, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You'll be eaten by scavenging beasts and birds, or you'll die of exposure to the elements. This this idea of being thrown out of the brightly lit wedding hall is not a picture of being thrown into everlasting torment in immortality. It's a, a picture of being thrown out of the celebration and left to die. So that's that's the language of outer darkness and weeping and gnashing, as as I understand it. And then I'll add that this language of weeping and gnashing appears also in places where it seems pretty clearly like the message is death and destruction, not everlasting physical life in torment. So take, for example, Matthew 13, where Jesus gives this parable about the weeds and the tares, or sorry, the the wheat and the tares. And in the parable, the landowner at the end says you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, the, the wheat from the tares, bind the tares in bundles to be burned, you know, and throw them in the fire to be burned. And the word that he uses for what happens to this chaff that's thrown into the fire is a Greek word katakayo, which doesn't just mean to burn. That's what the Greek word kayo means. Katakayo means to completely burn up, to be reduced to ashes. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint, in that scene in Exodus where Moses encounters the burning bush, the bush, the Greek author, or the Jewish author, uh, uh, translators of the Septuagint said, the bush was kayo. It was burning. It was on fire, but it was not katakayo. It was not consumed. It was not reduced to ashes. Well, so in Matthew 13, in this parable, the tares are burned to ashes, reduced to nothing. And then just a few verses later, Jesus says, just as the weeds are burned in fire, so will the wicked be thrown into a fiery furnace, which by the way, is language alluding to, that's oh, outright quoting the language of furnace of fire from Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar heats a furnace so hot that his own officials, just by getting close to that furnace, die from its heat. But the people thrown into it survive it. And you know why they survive it? It's not because they're made immortal so they can suffer there. They survive it because they have God's favor. They're saved. So when Jesus uses this language of weeping and gnashing in this fiery furnace after giving a parable in which the weeds are burned up, he's saying, you know, the saved are the only ones who'd be able to survive the, the fire of God, the, the lost thrown into that furnace of fire. Yeah, they'll, they'll weep and gnash. I mean, anybody that's burned to death is going to, you know, thrash violently. If, if they're angry, they'll gnash their teeth. If they're sad, they'll be, they'll be mourning and crying. But it doesn't say it'll go on forever. It'll just go on until they breathe their last. And that's that's a sampling of the way that I understand the, the kind of language you talked about. But if you have other specifics, we can certainly talk about them.
0: Yeah, and I might not be able to throw out a verse off the top of my head, but how would you deal with verses that do allude to the eternality of hell, maybe like Matthew 25? What do you do with those verses?
2: Matthew 25 doesn't actually allude to the eternality of hell. What it says, it says two things. It refers to an eternal fire in verse 41. I'll get to that in a second. But then it also refers to eternal punishment. And the problem, uh, the the, the assumption that many people make is that eternal punishment must be punishment as actively being inflicted for all eternity. But punishment does not only come in forms of, of conscious pain or torment or anything like that. The death penalty is an example of of punishment. And after all, it's called capital punishment. And in fact, the Greek word kolosis, which is translated punishment in Matthew 25, 46, is used several times in the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, where it refers to capital punishment. So if the punishment is death... Rather, and by death, I don't mean the, the, the act of dying. I mean the result of that act, not being alive anymore. If that is what the punishment is, and if you remain not alive after being killed for all eternity, well, then it is by definition an eternal punishment. That verse doesn't say hell is eternal. It says the punishment is eternal. And as an annihilationist, I say, amen. When the wicked are killed, their punishment of death, that is their lifelessness that results from being killed, will last forever. And by the way, that's obviously, at least on the surface, the better contrast to its alternative in that verse, which is eternal life. If the options are either eternal life or eternal punishment, the, the eternal punishment can't also be eternal life. So, what, what is the only eternal punishment that is not also, uh, it does not also involve everlasting life? Everlasting death, not being alive and forever. Now, what about verse 41, where Jesus says, depart from me, and it's not actually Jesus saying it, it's it's part of this parable, or or this story about the king who separates the, the people from left and right like sheep and goats. But he says, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And immediately, traditionalists think that what that's saying is that hell will be everlasting. Or even more bizarrely, they will assume that what that means is the fire never goes out because it never exhausts its fuel. And if its fuel are the resurrected lost, then that fuel must never be consumed. So it continues to provide fuel for this burning fire for all eternity. Well, that's an interesting theory, but maybe we could go to how Jesus actually uses the phrase because Matthew 25, 41 isn't the first place he uses the phrase eternal fire. He actually uses it a few chapters earlier in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. And there, he offers a fairly stereotypical Hebrew parallelism. The Hebrews were very well known for utilizing something called parallelism to say the same thing, but in two somewhat different ways in order to really get their point across. And in Matthew 18, 8 and 9, Jesus says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, it's better to maim yourself than to go alive into eternal fire. And then in the next verse, he says, it's better to maim yourself than to be cast into the Gehenna of fire, the hell of fire. I'm getting to a point here, just bear with me. Eternal fire then is parallel with Gehenna of fire, hell of fire. They mean the same thing. So then the question becomes, well, what is Gehenna? What what does Jesus mean by this word Gehenna? Well, what turns out to be the case is that there's very little use of that word in the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament. The only place where we see Gehenna found with any regularity is what are known as the Aramaic Targums. They are sort of like the Greek Septuagint, except instead of translating the Hebrew into Greek, the Targums translated them into Aramaic. And Gehenna appears several times in the Aramaic Targums, but wherever it does appear, it refers to literally dying a second time. There is no living forever in some kind of immortal pain or torment. Moreover, and more importantly, the Gehenna is an allusion to the Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, the Valley of Gehenna in the Old Testament, was not um, a place contrary to popular myth where trash burned all day. That's a myth that there's no evidence to support. Rather, what the Old Testament said about this Valley of the Sons of Hinnom is that one day, and you can see this in Jeremiah chapter 7, one day it would no longer be called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter, God says. And he says it will be called the Valley of Slaughter because there will be no room to bury the corpses of God's slain enemies after he slays them. And he says that the scavenging beasts and birds won't be able to be frightened away from these corpses upon which they feed. Of course, implying that those cor- those scavengers will completely devour their meal, completely eat up those corpses. So then by alluding to Gehenna, or sorry, by alluding to this Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, using the word Gehenna, Jesus is not, Uh, And by the way, setting that in parallel to eternal fire, Jesus is not referring to fire that never exhausts its fuel. He's referring to divine fire that destroys because it can't be stopped. You can't stop God's fiery wrath. It will do what it's meant to do. And in fact, in that phrase, eternal fire isn't only used by Jesus, it's also used by his brother Jude. In Jude 7, Jude says that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of the punishment of eternal fire. And what Jude is alluding to, and you know this because the parallel in Second Peter makes it explicit, Jude is alluding to the, the fire that descended from heaven in Genesis 19 and sl- slayed the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, serving thereafter as an example to anybody that would that would persist in their rebellion against God. So we have multiple lines of evidence that the phrase eternal fire on the lips of Jesus does not refer to fire in which immortals forever provide undying fuel to the flames, but rather it is the fire that issues forth from God and is inextinguishable. You can't stop it. And what it will do, therefore, is utterly destroy the wicked. So there's nothing there about the eternality of hell either. The only place, in fact, and maybe this is a little bit of a segue to get us to the verses I'm about to mention... The only place where hell is, in a sense, described as eternal is in the book of Revelation. And we could talk about that if and when you want to get to them.
1: It's interesting because for me, the appeal of the annihilationist position has always been that it gave an account that seemed more acceptable to my moral Hmm. faculties. It seemed like, oh, God's not going to torment them forever. There's not going to be demons poking and prodding them and all of these types of things for eternity. You know, God just sort of allows them to cease to exist. And that's sort of a mercy. It's tragic, but it's a mercy. But I mean, it almost seems like this vision you're presenting here, it still has lots of wrath and fire and I kind of gave you a way out of the Thanos thing, but instead of, of saying, no, it's not like Thanos, you double down. And you were like, it's going to be Sodom and Gomorrah up in here. This is really interesting to me that this isn't necessarily a, a position you've taken to avoid a moral thing. This is where you are going because you feel convicted based on scripture.
2: Yeah. In fact, I'll take it a step further. I actually find the prospect of living forever banished from the presence of God to be far less terrifying than being annihilated. And by the way, I'm not alone there. The Greek historian Plutarch in the first century said that if you were to give his fellow Greek countrymen the choice between torment forever in Hades or being annihilated, they would joyfully choose to live forever in Hades. Augustine said the same thing in The City of God, that if you were to offer the impenitent criminal the choice between living forever in pain or being annihilated, they would joyfully choose to live forever in pain. Now, there are lots of people who can't relate to that, and I get that. But it's a a reality that for many of us, ceasing to experience anything ever again is far more terrifying than being cordoned off in some gloomy corner of the cosmos forever. And what this highlights, I think, is that it's really critical I think that all of us as Christians stop trying to play the game of utilitarianism um, to figure out which view of hell seems like it's better for my moral intuitions, or, 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 you know, which one am I happier with? Which one, which one makes the gospel more palatable to a world that is con- increasingly rejecting Christ? Those kind—I of, don't think those are the right way to do it because you take any two people, and you might find that they're more fearful of different possible fates. So rather than just try and present the thing we think is more palatable, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing. But some people do. Rather than try and present to the targets of one's evangelism the view that is most palatable to them, which they're not going to necessarily be confidently able to discern anyway, just follow where the Bible seems to lead. And and that's what I've done, even though I, I would much rather my lost loved ones be cordoned off in a lo- in a gloomy corner of the cosmos forever than be annihilated. And despite knowing that it, holding this view makes me something of a pariah in the conservative communities that I identify with, I- I- I'm absolutely committed to the authority of scripture and I'm going to follow it where it leads, even if it leads me into the disrespect of my peers.
0: So I want to back up a bit. This is an interesting topic, but I kind of want to back up to this question of revelation before we get too far distant from that. I see that as kind of the most perplexing passage as well. I'm glad you brought that up. So how do you interpret that? But I also want to flip to the other side and ask you, is there a sort of proof texts or like most powerful verse that you can go to on the other side in favor of annihilationism?
2: Which order would you like me to answer those questions in?
0: Oh, let's do Revelation first and then you okay. come back. So you end on the good note.
2: Well, so it's funny you say that because I am I am somewhat known, I think, for using these verses that believers in eternal torment so often use in support of eternal torment, I actually use those verses as my positive case in debates against believers in eternal torment. Because the number one thing out of all other things that convinced me of annihilationism is that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for annihilationism. I say virtually no exception because the only exception, as far as I know, is Luke 16, but that doesn't have to do with hell at all. And we could talk about that if you want to get to it. I'm talking about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. So when I, I'm happy to discuss Revelation, but not because I, uh, first, but not because I want to save the good stuff for last. I think the Revelation passages are good stuff for my view, much better for my view than for its alternatives. So there there are two passages that typically play into the debate over hell from Revelation. One is in Revelation chapter 14, verses nine to 11, which describes beast worshipers being tormented in fire and sulfur and uh, having no rest day or night and smoke rising from them from their torment forever and ever and then revelation chapter 20 verses 10 to 15 in which the devil the beast and the false prophet are tormented forever and ever in a lake of fire and then a few verses later resurrected lost people are thrown into that same lake of fire before i exegete those passages though and obviously exegete is a bit of a loose term given that i've got to try to be somewhat brief, but it's really important that we understand the nature of the of the vision that the book of Revelation records. Because we as 21st century modern Westerners, we typically think, I think anyway, we typically think of visions like the one John sees as something as almost analogous to a camera recording what's going to take place in the future and then the recording being sent back in time and John watches it. Right? So it's it John is literally seeing the future. That is not how the vision recorded in Revelation works. And in fact, it's not how any vision in all of Scripture works. All, in all of Scripture, whenever a prophet sees the future, sees a prophetic vision that foretells the future, they don't see the future. Rather, they see a series of perplexing, esoteric symbols that communicate what the future holds, but not literally. So, for example, you go back to the Bible's quintessential dream interpreter, Joseph. When he's back in Genesis 39, 40, 41, that time frame, Joseph has a dream in which a bunch of sheaves of, of straw bow down to his own sheaf of straw. Well, guess what? That vision did not have anything at all to do with bundles of straw. That's what he saw. But what it symbolized was that his own family would one day submit to his reign, to his rule. And then while he's in prison, Pharaoh has a, a cupbearer and a baker that he sends to prison, and they have prophetic visions of the future. And when Joseph interprets them, he says that, you know, the, the, the baker's dream in which there are these baskets of bread on his head. He says, the, it's not, actually not about bread at all. The, the fact that these birds are eating bread out of the baskets on your head is evidence that in three days, Pharaoh is going to lop your head off. And then the cupbearer, who has a dream in which grapes burst forth from branches, his vision isn't about that at all. It's not about wine at all. Rather, the three branches from which grapes are budding forth, Joseph says, symbolize the fact that in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore the cupbearer to office. And this kind of Symbol-representing-reality dynamic is at play in every prophetic vision in Scripture of the future. Uh, Think of Daniel's visions uh, or Nebuchadnezzar's visions that Daniel interprets. It's even true in in Revelation self-evidently, because when John sees uh, golden bowls full of incense, burning incense, he says that these bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. He's not saying that there's literally bowls of incense filled with our prayers. He's saying that these burning incense bowls in the vision he's seeing symbolize the prayers of the saints. Just I want to make clear that as we go into these texts, what we're dealing with is a vision of the a vision that foretells the future by means of symbols. And what I'm going to grant right from the outset is that the scenes that John sees in this vision do indeed Dis, uh, describe everlasting fiery torment, but the question is not, you know, what takes place in the imagery. That's a tr- that's a fairly trivial question. The question that matters is what does that symbolize, and that's what I'm going to try to answer now. So when we go to Revelation 14 verses 9 to 11, we see at least three symbols converge in this scene that that John is watching and and hearing people speak in in his vision. The the three symbols that describe the fate of these beast worshipers include being tormented in fire and sulfur drinking God's wrath and torment rising or smoke rising forever and ever. Okay. Now we could try to invent whatever meaning we want. You know, we, we could try and guess as to what these symbols mean, but rather than read into the text of scripture, our assumptions about what these symbols are meant to communicate. Why don't we let John himself answer that? Because as it turns out, all three of those symbols are used again, just a few chapters later in revelation chapters 18 and 19. The harlot, Mystery Babylon, this, blat- this blood-drunk, vampiric prostitute riding on the back of a seven-headed, ten-born beast. She is said to be tormented in fire and sulfur. She's made to drink of God's wrath. And at the beginning of chapter 19, a hallelujah chorus cries out, the smoke rises from her forever and ever, using the exact same Greek that we see in Revelation 14. But guess what this symbolism means, what it represents? an angel tells John that the great city that the harlot represents will be destroyed and found no more. So in John's own vision, these symbols converge to symbolize the destruction of a city and the deaths of its many inhabitants. So we don't have any reason to think that it means anything different, just a few chapters earlier, where it describes the fate of the beast worshipers. And I'll add that these symbols aren't new to John. The the Old Testament is the wellspring whence these symbols come. So all of these symbols, drinking God's wrath, being tormented in fire and sulfur, smoke rising forever, come right out of the Old Testament, where they are often used to talk about the destruction and deaths of God's enemies. Just one example is in Isaiah 34.10, in which it is prophesied, uh, prophesied that the city of Edom would be reduced to burning pitch, and smoke would rise from it forever and ever. But nobody thinks that 10 trillion years from now, in eternity future, the city of Edom is going to be belching columns of black smoke into the sky. It's symbolism communicating the destruction of Edom, using the language of smoke rising from it forever and ever. So Revelation 14, 9 to 11, the symbols that converge there by John's own authority in the book of Revelation, symbolize death and destruction, not immortality and everlasting torment. Now, as for Revelation 20... It's absolutely true that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are depicted in the symbolism as everlastingly tormented in a lake of fire. And then the resurrected lost are thrown into it too. And although the text doesn't say that they will be tormented forever and ever there with the devil, the beast and the false prophet, there's no reason to assume that something different is going to befall them than befell the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. So I think we're fair, I think we're on good grounds to assume that everything thrown into this lake of fire in the vision John is seeing is tormented forever and ever. But again, the question is, what does it mean? Well, we might start by observing that I intentionally have not yet listed everything thrown into that fire. John doesn't only see the devil, the beast, and the false prophet thrown into it and the resurrected lost. He also sees death and Hades thrown into it after they have been emptied of their lost. This is really critical because death and Hades in John's vision are not abstract entities. They're conscious beings. Back in Revelation 6, the famous uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, the fourth horseman is death, and Hades follows him. So death in John's vision is a horse rider, like a knight, and Hades is his squire, if you will. So these are conscious entities, just like the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, and the resurrected lost, again, in John's vision, I'm talking, in the symbolism. So presumably, death and Hades, after they're thrown into the lake of fire, will also be eternally tormented there. Well, what does their fate mean? of everlasting torment in the lake of fire symbolize. Well, guess what God says at the, in just a few verses later in Revelation 21, four or eight, one or the other of those. He says, Hathanatas uk esti eti, death shall be no more. And he's quoting from, or at the very least heavily alluding to Isaiah thir- uh, 25, in which Yahweh promises one day to swallow up death forever, which is the same passage that Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 15, wherein he also says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what Revelation depicts is death and Hades being thrown into a lake of fire and tormented forever there. But what does it symbolize? It symbolizes the annihilation of death. And if the symbol of their everlasting torment and fire symbolizes annihilation of death, we have good reason to think that's what all of the imagery there converges to symbolize. And there's one more bit of evidence I'll add, but I could go on for hours, quite honestly. John calls this fate the second death. And specifically, what he says is the lake of fire is the second death. And what believers in eternal torment will typically assume is that what John is doing is sort of labeling the lake of fire the second death, such that they'll say, look, if you want to know what takes place in the second death, look at what he's identifying as a second death, everlasting torment in a lake of fire. But that is not what John is doing. This is really critical. And I'll end with this. Going back to all those visions I mentioned before, when Joseph's vision is interpreting the, the, the dreams of Pharaoh's officials when he interprets Pharaoh's dream, all visions in scripture, the interpreters will say something like what Joseph tells Pharaoh, where Pharaoh sees seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile in his vision, and then seven sick cows come up and eat the first seven. And what Joseph tells Pharaoh is the seven cows are seven years, meaning the seven cows symbolize seven years. And this is all throughout the prophetic visions of the future in scripture. So when, jo- when, when John says the lake of fire is the second death, he's not labeling the lake of fire the second death. He's interpreting the symbol that is the lake of fire as symbolizing the second time people will die. That's what anybody would understand the second death to be if they didn't already have preconceptions about that what that language meant. They would mean, oh, the second time you die? and And that's how interpretation functions. It takes the perplexing meaning hidden in the esoteric imagery, and it makes plain what it's meant to communicate. And so the plain understanding of second death would be dying a second time, which is what we annihilationists believe, and it's what believers in eternal torment and universalists disbelieve. And I'll add, by the way, this is, this is what I'll really end on. That, that phrase second death appears in intertestamental Jewish literature in only one place. And I mentioned it earlier. It's those targums that I talked about. In fact, it's used in several places right next to the word Gehenna. And in, in every one of those places where second death appears in those Aramaic targums, it refers to the wicked literally dying a second time and not participating in the life to come. So when John tells his readers, look, if you want to understand what the symbol of eternal torment in a lake of fire means, it means the the second death. He's not using code language. He's just telling them it means the second time God's enemies will die. So I went for a long time there, and so I'll understand if you guys would rather I not answer Seth's other question about what are some of the most powerful verses in support of annihilationism. Did you want me to do that really quick? I'll be briefer.
0: Throw out one, maybe your favorite.
2: Luke chapter 20, verses 35 and 36. So in the scene here, Jesus is answering a challenge about the resurrection from the Sadducees, who um, didn't believe in an afterlife, so they were sad, you see. And every time I hear that joke, it makes me want to vomit, and I want to share that joy with all of you. <laughs> so they—they're like, the resurrection can't make sense because what if you've got this woman who whose husband whose first husband dies, and so she remarries remar- her or his his. Brother, and then he dies, and so she marries his brother, and then he dies, and so on and so forth. And, and they're like in the resurrection, whose wife is is she going to be? And in verses thirty four and thirty or thirty four through thirty six, Jesus says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to t- to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage because or for they cannot die anymore. Why can't they die anymore? Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. So what does this seem to imply? It seems to imply that the property of not being able to die anymore is something that is only going to be extended to those who are sons of God in the resurrection. Those who are not the sons of God presumably will die, and this is specifically about the resurrection. It's specifically about physical death, and I don't think it could be any clearer. But of course, I could. There are so many other verses, but I like this one because it's so surprising to some people.
1: Awesome. Well. Moving from scripture to church tradition, has annihilation been a part of church history in any major way? Or is it sort of a recent invention of them liberals?
2: Yeah. Uh, The answer is yes, it has been thoroughly represented in church history, at least in the early church history. And of course, people are going to have to take what I say here with a grain of salt, knowing that I'm fallible and I may have made mistakes in my research. But I want to make clear that I took this research very seriously because when I was considering annihilationism, I I didn't want to believe something that was a a relatively novel invention. I take very seriously a quote uh, that a dear but past friend of mine, Edward Fudge, made um, when I interviewed him on, on this topic before he passed in 2018. He said, if it's true, it probably isn't new. And if it's new, it probably isn't true. Now, that word probably is critical, right? We could be wrong. If it is new, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. But it is a general truism, right? It's highly unlikely given the Holy Spirit's ongoing operation within the church for 2000 years that the church would miss a, a truth like this until the 19th century or something like that. Possible, but unlikely. So I took that very seriously. And what I discovered was that actually in the early church, annihilationism is very well represented. And so too, by the way, is universalism. But they're not all, uh, not all three views are created equally in in regard to the early church. So what I have found, again, I'm fallible. My conclusions are are open to being wrong. But what I think I see in the early church is that the earliest Christians that we have the writings of were in fact annihilationists. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch says that if God were to reward us according to our works, we would cease to be. He says that God breathed immortality into the church. Clement of Rome talks about uh, the, the, the wicked being destroyed in the sense of in the same kind of destroy sense as Jesus was, namely killed. So, And Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch are writing right around the turn of the first century into the second, so right around 100 AD. The Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, um, the Psalms and Odes of Solomon. There's a lot of these early church documents that seem pretty clearly to teach conditional immortality and annihilationism. But then in the latter half of the second century, so between 150 to 200 AD, what you discover is all three views So you've still got the conditionalist and annihilationist views being propagated by Irenaeus of Lyon. He is the one who wrote the famous Against Heresies, this gigantic tome that some of your viewers will be familiar with. And in the very context of defending disembodied souls continuing to exist for as long as God wants them to, Irenaeus says God has the power to preserve people in in existence and in life as long as he wants. And as evidence, he points to the sun and the moon and the other celestial bodies that, that persist from generation to generation. God has the power to grant everlastingness to any creatures that he so chooses. But he says that those who deprive the gift of salvation deprive themselves of continuance and length of days forever and ever. So he's saying they, by rejecting the gift of salvation, are rejecting continuance and length of days forever and ever. And there's other stuff we could point to as well. But alongside Irenaeus of Lyon, you have on the one side, the eternal torment side, you have the likes of Athenagoras of Athens and Tatian of Adiabene, both of whom teach a plain, straightforward, everlasting torment view, according to which the resurrected lost are immortal and suffer forever. And on the other side of the spectrum, you've got universalism in the likes of uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen of Alexandria. And here's the interesting thing. For the next few hundred years, these three views don't condemn one another. You know, um, Augustine calls universalists foolish, but he doesn't call them heretics. And none of the ecumenical creeds from this era lift up one particular view of hell over the other two as being quintessentially Christian, and they don't condemn the other two views. The first time any one of these views is condemned is uh, possibly in the Second Council of Constantinople in, I think, the 6th century, where maybe they have condemned universalism, but that's questionable. They certainly didn't condemn annihilationism. So you've got this interesting situation where, if I'm right, conditionalism appears from the very get-go, and then very soon thereafter, all three views are fighting for belief, but. They're not condemning one and each other as heretics, and they seem to live perfectly fine with their uh, tolerating their differences of opinion. But what happens is Augustine, who is known as one of the four great fathers of the church, he put his stamp of approval on the Doctrine of Eternal Torment for reasons that we can get into if you want. But that's the view that he believed and taught. And because of his justified and deserved influence, countless Christians follow suit. And it quickly, this Doctrine of Eternal Torment quickly becomes the dominant view and eclipses virtually to to the entire disappearance of the other two views, eclipses those other views for centuries. And it's not until roughly the time of the Reformation that I start to see annihilationism start to reappear again, and it starts to gain momentum over the centuries since then. So yes, I'm the first to admit, and I think this is the only real weak Point in my view of hell is that you've got this roughly 1,000 year long period of time between roughly 500 AD and 1500 AD where I can identify no annihilationists. And that's tough to deal with. But remember what the Reformers did. They weren't, if you read the writings of the Reformers, they weren't only trying to go back to scripture and ignore tradition. They were trying to look, they were trying to go back to what the earliest Christians taught as well. They believed very firmly that the earliest Christians would have fairly well represented the teachings of Scripture. And what they did by rejecting the accumulations of tradition by the Roman Catholics they were, trying to, they were going back to what they thought was not only the teachings of Scripture, but also the teachings of the earliest Christians that were quickly eclipsed by this developing Roman Catholic tradition. And that's what I see myself and other annihilationists as doing. We're not merely rejecting a thousand years of tradition in favor of what we think Scripture is teaching. We're also rejecting a thousand years of tradition for what we see as an earlier tradition, one that is consistent with the teachings of Scripture in support of annihilationism.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Chris State. We really appreciate it.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. It really means a lot.
0: So what's
1: amazing is I'd never thought annihilationism was that strong scripturally. I've always thought it was interesting because of philosophical and theological reasons.
0: That's because you never read the Bible, John.
1: I don't live it. I don't read it. I live it, Seth. I live it. I breathe it. I write it on my doors and my gates and my goats. And then I read it when I'm milking my cows because it's right there on the cow. I think that philosophically and theologically, like, there's a huge case there for annihilationism. And he kind of avoided a lot of it. Like, morally, I think it's just a much stronger case for annihilationism than for eternal conscious torment. And theologically, like, if you define God as being itself, as the one whose essence is existence who is the capital B being from which all lowercase beings derive their being, then of course to be separated from God eternally is to cease to be, is to be separated from the one who is existence in self. And so to therefore cease to be like, to me, that's one of the most profound theological cases you could make in this. And he just, he didn't get into that at all, which is, which is fine. I mean, that's not, He seems very more scripturally focused, but like I'd love to talk about that.
0: Well, that's smart, right? Because the reason people hold to the perspective of the traditional view of hell is scriptural. It's because this is how the church has read the Holy Text, and this is how we continue to read the Holy Text. So if you're going to make a case that's convincing, you're not going to hit necessarily the strongest argument. I'm not saying these arguments are stronger, but you're saying that you think they're stronger. I'm saying you're going to hit the case that would you're going to give the case that's going to most be convincing to the person you're talking to. And that's going to be, it doesn't matter how strong your philosophical or theological case is, if it doesn't align with the revelation in scripture, you're going to throw it out, which is he brought up that he's young earth creationist. So I appreciate that. This is why he was the perfect person to bring on to represent this position, because I think he gave a really good case.
1: Well, and I think you're right. I, I, I It's unfair to criticize him for not appealing specifically to me, the theologian philosopher, All I'm saying is I would have enjoyed that discussion. How did you
0: read? I just got to, I got to, I got to ask. How did you read when Jesus said, do not be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. How did you read that?
1: That is really interesting. He made a number of really interesting. He didn't bring that
0: one up. I'm
1: surprised. He didn't. Oh, okay. You make a number of really interesting uh, (laughs) scriptural points. He said a lot of things, Seth, to be fair. I was, he was overwhelmingly comprehensive, very impressive, but uh just He's just to be just to be 100% fair,
0: 100% right. He's 100% right that the predominant description of hell is destruction. Let's look at John chapter 15. Another thing he didn't bring up is what happens to the vines that are cut off. They're picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. And the idea is yeah. that they're not going to burn forever. They're being destroyed. They're being absolutely just burned up and then they're gone. Yeah. I wish we had time for it, but I really wanted to ask him about there's You say it's more moral, but one of the arguments I've heard against annihilationism is that it's actually less moral because the annihilation of Hitler seems like he's getting off pretty easy.
1: Ah, so it's immoral to the oppressed and the victims.
0: That Hitler gets off pretty easy. He gets off the same as the person who lived a generally good life by human standards, but just didn't, you know, accept Jesus, maybe rejected Jesus.
1: Well, that's really interesting, but I don't think the annihilationist is forced to say that Hitler died and immediately ceased to exist. They can even pair annihilationism with a temporary form of hell, or
0: You're, you've got a bigger, better argument there. Yeah, you could say he burns up for a longer time before he's finally poof gone, yeah. so to speak. Yeah,
1: so the yeah, and the as the chaff is being burned, that's there's a period of time where the chaff is being burned before it ceases to be, and. Maybe for Hitler, God just lets that be a little longer. He's like, we're just going to turn the fire down a little bit. Let this tea cook slowly.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> so bad. Really. St- That's really so bad. St- really
1: steep the mustache hairs. The, uh, you know, like.
0: <laughs> You're really enjoying this.
1: Well, I mean, I'm not enjoying
0: I'm pretty sure I'm going to believe in eternal conscious torment because people like you exist.
1: Well, this the is the only form
0: of justice for people like you. <laughs> uh,
1: I believe in it because you're an eternal conscious torment to me, Seth. A constant poke in my side, a thorn in my flesh, a fart in my You've face. Got, you got there eventually. <laughs> uh, you're like, oh, he forgot what the verse is, so he's coming up with, he's making he, up he other is. stuff. Again,
0: if you, if, you, uh, if you only read your Bible, John, <laughs> uh, instead of putting gosh. it on your goat.
1: Don't quote the ancient magic to me, which... I was there when it was written.
0: Yes, good uh, good Narnia quote.
1: Was that a divine claim? Was I just claiming to be eternal? Before Seth was, I am.
0: I don't even know where this conversation ended up. <laughs> so, all that to say, I really think that his usage of scripture is important. I think the fact that he came out as a Young Earth creationist is even more important, because what more shows your commitment to scripture than a commitment to Young Earth creationism today? You're saying, I don't care what all of contemporary science, well, maybe not all, but a good chunk of contemporary science is saying, I'm going to go with the revelation.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Like, no one is a young earth creationist because they just feel like doing it. It's one of those things where, like, you're going to be embarrassed publicly in your science class, in conversations with people at work. Like, that's going to come out, and they're going to mock you for being a young earth creationist. So, like, You're only one if you really are convinced
0: by scripture. So, and this is another thing I wish we could have him on for is going through, you you talk about the intertestamental literature, talks about Targum. The one text he didn't bring up was first Enoch. Mm. And the descriptions there do seem like eternal conscious torment. I'm not going to lie. Just going through that and actually going through that recently again, it does seem like it's talking about eternal conscious torment. And there's a lot of allusions in the New Testament to first Enoch so like when Christ says uh, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth they inherit the earth that's a subtle citation to first Enoch Christ is alluding to uh, first Enoch where it says the elect will inherit the earth and he's saying the meek are the elect mm. and so you don't get that verse without it and so it's all through the New Testament and then you get some of these fire images which are also in first Enoch but it does seem to suggest eternal conscious torment and you could see I mean all this to say I'm not even pushing back I'm just curious this is one of those things that You have to know the church tradition. You got to know intertestamental stuff. You got to know the Greek. You got to know Old Testament descriptions of Gehenna and stuff. This is a wide ranging discussion on what seems to be a pretty narrow theological issue. I'm glad he's got like an encyclopedic knowledge, which he demonstrated, because you need that for these discussions.
1: Yeah. And I think what this demonstrates is like there are people who take scripture seriously, prayerfully, thoroughly, who are wrestling with church tradition on kind of all sides of this debate and whether you think annihilationism or universalism are true or not there's got to be a reckoning in the contemporary or church traditionalism or traditionalism but there's got to be a re- no that wasn't what to was say there's got to be a reckoning in the contemporary church with the fact that like other christians are taking different sides on this and that doesn't mean they're automatically heretics who don't believe the gospel who don't believe there's got to be more of a sense of but what the fact is the that we line, can disagree then? on this stuff.
0: But well, what is I the mean, line, though? I mean, I mean, I know a lot of people who'd say annihilationism, that's fine. You know, John Stott, who's like basically the British Billy Graham, was an annihilationist. And they'd they'd be fine with saying, OK, that's within the fold, but universalism is not. So but he's not, you know he's saying all three need to be but how do we draw this line? But
1: I mean so you might not agree with universalism. You might not think it is even quite orthodox. And yet that doesn't mean everyone who's a universalist is a heretic. Like if you look at Robin Perry, Robin Perry's theological system is deeply evangelical. It is grace-filled through and through. Yes, everyone will be saved, but it's only through the cross, it's only through Jesus that people are getting there. Like, he's still getting so much of the essentials right, and the gospel message is still at the heart of it. So, like, I think there's got to be some sense that, like, if the cross is at the center, if that's really what makes you a Christian or not, that's still there for a lot of Christian universalists. Not all, but for a lot.
0: Let's put that in with five-point Calvinism. Third point, Christ did not die for all people. He died for the elect. Now let's go to the other end of the spectrum and say... Christ died for all people and it is efficacious for all people. And then somewhere in the middle where Christ died for all people, but it's only efficacious for the church. There's all these different views. So if you say the cross is at the middle, but the cross means something different for every person within that fold, then do you, is there really anything uniting them?
1: Great point, Seth. I guess you've just problematized away having faith. At all, like it, no one can agree. What does there, that mean? Is no, there is no such thing as the Christian tradition, so I guess whatever.
0: That's that's obviously not what I'm saying. I, you're just waving your hands at the problem, which is that if you're going to say if you're going to say we can welcome these people into the fold as long as across at the center, you need to know what the cross means.
1: Yeah, but that's not a problem for what I'm saying because it's presumably most evangelicals are the ones who are saying you have to believe in the cross, so
0: like they've got to figure does that out what mean? it means. <laughs> I yeah, think, but um, I, surely I, I don't think, you want to as well. I don't think we have you to don't, nail, wave, don't wave your hands at it. You know? I,
1: I don't think we have to nail down everything about the cross in order to have the cross be central. I don't think you have to decide exactly who the cross was for in order to say it is only through the cross that we are saved. And a lot of evangelical universalists would agree with that. It's only through the cross we're saved. If you agree with that, maybe we can deal with the details later and figure out exactly who that encompasses. Like, we can debate that. But the cross is still at the center. And just because I'm waving my hands.
0: This is this is Chris, Chris State would disagree because there might be a universalist out there who says, yeah, it's through the cross we're saved. But it doesn't really matter what you believe at that point. All religions are getting to heaven, blah, 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 blah. They, they, they might not recognize the means by which they are, but it really doesn't matter. And so he would say that's sort of outside the fold. That's a universalism that isn't. So so again, we have to know what we mean by the cross. If we just say, well, it means the cross is the center of salvation. Is that really it? You know?
1: Well, what do you mean by being outside of the fold? Like that's an important difference. That's an important and significant difference. But does it mean that person's a heretic? Does that mean that person isn't saved if they think that?
0: I mean, this is important for defining, right? What does it mean to be Christian? Because it can't just mean anything and everything, right? And I mean, Christian should define a, a distinct set of theologically persistent traditions. I mean, otherwise, it's just a meaningless word. A Christian is whoever calls himself a Christian, and that's not a good definition. So this is why I think it's important. I mean, not even from a salvation perspective or a church perspective, who's inside the church and who isn't. I just think it what what does it mean to be a Christian? We need to have a the nice distinct set of pretty universally held characteristics. It's the Vincentian canon. It's what's been held by all people everywhere for all time.
1: So you know? I agree there needs to be things like that. I think what we're disagreeing about is how many things of that nature should there be and is specifying exactly what is hell, how long it is and that sort of thing really part of that. I mean, I would say Grace is primary the question of exactly who it's extended to I don't want to say it's unimportant it's not unimportant but like I think maybe we can have broader conversations and disagree about that a bit as long as we're still on board that it's only through grace and through Jesus that anyone is saved at all
0: let, let me throw out the sort of test case again and just put it to you then if we have a Universalist here who says all religions get to heaven it doesn't matter what you believe because Christ died and his salvation is efficacious for all people, regardless, right? It does matter what you believe. That's, well, uh, that's that's different. Because now it's not the cross, it's also the cross plus faith.
1: Yeah. I think if you're extending faith into the afterlife and you're saying it is important that someone eventually believes in Jesus, okay. it just doesn't, you know, I like I, I think as long as you're taking the basic Christian package and just extending its temporal terms into the afterlife. To me that's that's just a disagreement about time frame it's not a disagreement about the package itself which is something that's very much what i think robin perry is doing it's the christian package just extended into the afterlife
0: right because we started this conversation you said it's the cross and now you're saying it's the cross plus faith which is fine i think that's good but who who's to say that it's not just the cross right we're setting boundaries but who gets to set the boundaries? And this is, it just gets back to my original question. We can say universalism ought to be considered into the fold, but that's only if we take a broader view of what is considered the fold, essentially. I'm not disagreeing we should do that. I'm just saying that there's some people who say the only people within the fold are going to be ECT people, traditional view of hell. And so how do we have the, how do we make these distinctions? We keep saying, yeah, but we're all making these subtle, nearly definitional claims about what it is to be Christian. And depending on how narrowly or broadly we specify that is how we end up coming to these conclusions on who who's in and who's out and creating this in group and out group. That makes sense.
1: Totally. And I don't think, therefore, all universalists are in. I, I think I'm more saying we shouldn't assume all universalists are out. It's It's more complicated than that. And there's got to you got to get into the minutiae and the details of a lot of their arguments because a lot of them have the rest of the basic theological structure in place. And the difference between our system and theirs is actually just a matter of time scale. Are they extending that past death? And so I get what you're saying. I just, yeah, I don't know what else to say here other than I think it's more complicated. And of course, everyone has really got into
0: universalism.
1: Yeah, we've drifted into universalism. It's funny because you're criticizing me for throwing my hands around like this. But what you do is you just talk at me until I get flustered and then you win because I forget what we're even talking about.
0: You seemed a little flustered. We're talking about you being flustered. You seemed a little flustered when he started talking about Plutarch and Augustine and the mass of the Greek population preferring eternal conscious torment to annihilation. When it comes to moral intuitions, I think it's important to distinguish between those that are socially and culturally determined versus those that appear to be more primordial. Now, I think society and culture can sort of develop ours in the right way because I don't think kids are all born with the right moral intuitions. I think some of those have to be culturally imbibed. But at the same time hearing that was kind of like oh maybe it is just a part of my culture that thinks that eternal conscious torment really is worse than annihilationism maybe that is just a culturally infused value that really once we look at this on a broader scale doesn't really pan out there are people who disagree with that
1: yeah i thought it was really interesting i hadn't thought about annihilationism being harder morally i was a little uncomfortable with how we constantly kept contrasting theology and moral sentiments with scripture because it's i i agree that we should take scripture over just our personal preferences but what is scripture just on its own aren't we always coming to the text with something and he he seemed to be assuming that there could just be the text in itself versus the social construct no 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 i don't think he would say my that. moral reasoning and my i don't think he would say that but i think he
0: no no i don't think i think he would he would clarify to say allow scripture we obviously are interpreting scripture, but that doesn't mean scripture can't interpret us as well. There are points where it's like, oh my gosh, that's offensive. I find that morally offensive. We meet those points in scripture. And the, then at that point, the question becomes, yes, this is exactly what scripture says. I can not interpret it a different way. I can't make this easier for me. So what's got to give? The only two options you're confronted with is you shape your moral intuitions based on what scripture says, or you deny that portion of scripture entirely and try and get either try and give it another interpretation which isn't viable or just say it's wrong Does that makes sense i think that's all he's saying
1: no i get that i just feel like it's more complicated than that i think trying to really get at what scripture is clearly saying in order to show that it so overtly jives with our social stuff i think i think it's harder than we think it is and i'm not saying that it can't be done or it's impossible i i just I'm more skeptical about it than he seemed to be.
0: See, see, that's the thing, though, because it happens all the time. I think anyone who's read through scripture gets confronted with a place where you feel your morality, your whatever it is, is confronted by something in scripture. I mean, I I always give the illustration of the Germanic people. When they confronted scripture, they weren't turned off by the justice of God, hell, eternal conscious torment, or because that's what they were taught or anything like that. They were scandalized by the mercy of God. Forgive your enemies. Because they had grown up in a culture where your enemies would come in and butcher your children and steal your wife. And the idea of just forgiving them was unbefitting of a divine being. But of course, now we look back at that and says, okay, given their culture, it's it's understandable why they think that. And given our culture, we struggle with the exact opposite issue, which is the justice of God quite often. And then we can look at these other cultures and allow them to critique us and to see scripture maybe in a new light.
1: Yeah, I think what we're both saying are both valid. I don't think they cancel each other out.
0: But fun fact, if I can switch it a bit. So some, I mean, some actually, um, eternal conscious torment, traditionalist views actually agree that annihilationism is worse. Annihilation is worse, which is why hell is a mercy. Mm. Think about it. If evil is non-being, then annihilation is the ultimate non-being. It's the ultimate evil that can befall you. So it's the hell is a mercy. Yeah, it's the worst thing.
1: I guess I guess that's axiomatically true if you're looking at a, on the totem pole of being to non-being where goodness right. and being are synonymous, it is better morally and goodness-wise and aesthetically and pleasure-wise to be ever so like That's really interesting. David
0: Bentley Hart thinks it's it's absolutely. I mean, he just goes with a moral intuition here. He doesn't really think it's it's he thinks it's hogwash. Yeah. But again, it seems like Plutarch might disagree. I'd never heard that before. It's an interesting case.
1: No, it's it's very interesting. And it does totally flip the switch. And to be honest, it it makes annihilationism less attractive. What I was finding so attractive about it was that it took seriously our moral intuitions and my philosophic ontological intuitions. And the philosophical ones are still intact, but the moral ones are really waning here.
0: I actually found that more interesting. The fact that he basically just kind of went into that and said, I'm not being driven by the fact that I'm trying to lessen hell and make it palatable. I actually think this is worse. And yet I still come to it. That makes his position seem more authentic to me
1: yeah it's a common trope in evangelical circles is to well i i wish i didn't but scripture demands it yeah it's just
0: evangelicals do that it's
1: just it's just evangelicals yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. you never hear an atheist going well i wish i could still believe but the reason just led me out of it
1: well of course different contexts manifest these differently but the specific trope i just appealed to is more specifically evangelical. It's human and
0: it's real it's real. Yeah. I hold the positions that I wish I didn't have to. I think everyone does.
1: Yeah, but but of course people often hold positions that are countercultural or counter to things and their intuitions precisely because they're counter. I mean, that, that person who hates Avatar just because everyone else was supposed to like it. Like you, Seth, you hate no, Avatar. Because I hated you it the
0: first time it came you, out. I wanted you, to like it. It's I like ho- James Cameron's Aliens. It's my one of my favorite movies ever. I was going in expecting you to like it that much.
1: You're such a normie. It's boring. You're, such, you're such a normie. All the normies hate Avatar, and now it's cool yeah, to hate Avatar I'm the normie. and yeah, whatever. Alright, let's just cut th- this conversation is going to seep into non-existence. It will cease to be whatever ontology of the founding.
0: again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. This was only part of our discussion with Chris State. If you want to hear more of our discussion, including our conversation about what he thinks about universalism, the belief that everyone gets to heaven, go check out our Patreon. For only $5 a month, you get access to this and extended interviews with all of our guests, including many other perks as well. Go check it out right now at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.